fondest memory of a distant childhood in a distant Korea was when she used to visit her grandmother's house. There, dropped like a patch of vibrant green and molded concrete, was the madang, the courtyard within a traditional Korean home, an outdoor living room, if you will. It was there where Grace Kim first played make-believe, creating a space where real life and the abstract first met. For Dr. Grace Kim, professor and writer of theology and the Korean-American experience, the Madang is a sacred place for guests to openly share their experiences and work, a place where real life and ideas are up for discussion. This podcast welcomes guests to speak openly on modern issues in religion and culture. The Madang is open. I invite you to come in, converse, and stay for a while. Welcome to Madang. Today is a special edition of Madang, where I have Dr. Russell Jung, who's a professor of Asian American Studies at San Francisco State University. He's also one of the co-founders of Stop AAPI Hate, uh, which is an important organization for our time today. He's also the author of five very important books, most recently, Family Sacrifices, the Worldviews and Ethics of, Christi- of Chinese Americans, published by Oxford University Press. So welcome, Dr. Russell Jung, to my uh, special podcast, where you will share about your organization, as well as what we in the general public can do to stop AAPI hate. So to begin, can you just say a little bit about your um, organization and how you came to kind of start the organization? Well, thanks for having me, Grace. Um, Early in January 2020, we heard news about COVID-19 in China and how dangerous it was. And I actually had a relative from Beijing come and visit us, and we had dinner with her and her son and mom. And then we were sort of already aware that um, she might be stuck in the United States and not be able to go back to China because of travel bans. And that's what happened. She actually couldn't return. And so she was sort of in limbo with the United States, not being able to go back home because um, they just stopped travel from China to the US and from US to China. Um, And then the week later, I, I got really sick. And the doctors asked, have you been to China? I said, no, but I, you know, I had contact with someone from China, but they weren't that cautious. And they said, oh, that's fine. And I turned out, they tested me, I had H1N1 flu, but that sort of personal experience was alerted me to, oh, COVID is dangerous and people should actually take it much more seriously. And it's already impacting my own family. I also knew from SARS that Asians would be um, harassed and attacked. And I knew from Asian American history that Asians were often harassed and attacked because of epidemics. So I began to pay attention more to the news and I noticed a lot of news stories about around the world about um, not allowing Asians to eat at their restaurants. Um, One person in Australia died from a heart attack and people wouldn't help him because they thought he had the coronavirus and he was Chinese. 
So I began to um, actually track news accounts and I saw a clear trend globally and then nationally about harassment, people shunning Asians, um, people being denied businesses, um, businesses denying service. So I contacted these two um, local California nonprofits, uh, Chinese for Affirmative Action and Asian Pacific Policy Planning Council. And they too had been working on the issue. Um, they were beginning to get incidents that they were helping and advocate for the victims. So we wrote to the California Attorney General saying, you gotta start tracking this because this is widespread. They said they didn't have the capacity. We, I thought about contacting, I really think it is the government's responsibility to track because they need to monitor hate and because that's their responsibility to safeguard our safety and public health. But I knew Trump's wouldn't do so. So then we created our own website and the API Legislative Caucus in California, the Asian Pacific Islander, those assembly persons and members and the senators, they knew that this was happening and they were supportive. So they helped um, publicize our founding and our establishment. And the first day, we, it was actually a year ago, um, almost to this day, we opened Stop API Hate on and with um, several languages available. And we were flooded with hundreds of incidents. So they're- um, Already on the first day you were flooded with- On the first day we had, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, over a hundred incidents nationwide. And we were, well, I was stunned at um, the vitriol and the anger that people um, spewed towards Asians and people were coughing and spitting or pushing and shoving. And then, those reports continue to come in. And um, that's how we created Stop API. We issued our first report, I think in a week or two. At the same time, President Trump began using the term Chinese virus. And I think that clearly exacerbated the issue. I could talk about that a little bit later, but um, that's how we started. We knew the racism was going to happen given history, seeing my own family's personal experience with the dangers of COVID-19 and um, government's non-responsiveness to our community's initial concerns. Yeah, I, I'm so grateful that you started it and I'm so glad that there's so many languages which shows the diversity of our Asian American community. We're not monolithic, we speak different languages, we come from so many different countries. We are such a diverse group and the hate that's feared towards all of us is so heartbreaking. So I am so grateful that you started the organization. I'm so glad that some of the uh, government, I know you recently received a grant too, right? 1.8 million or something to help with the organization. Can you say a little bit about that? Um, yeah, we were, because the issue was so important, the, um, again, the API Legislative Caucus made us their top priority. We then worked with UCLA's Asian American Studies and they have a whole bunch of COVID projects. Most of that 1.4 million grant goes to UCLA. We only got 300,000 of it. But um, UCLA's projects um, also study the impact of racism and just again, the impact of COVID on our community, especially our marginalized population. So I appreciate their work. You know, I just by uh, what people post on social media, I think a lot of people think that this kind of anti-hate um, Anti-Asian hate is a recent phenomena just with um, the start of the pandemic, but I think people are not aware of the history 
of our whole Asian American story, um, you know, where the hate was just, we were the targets of hate from the beginning of our migration here. I don't know, uh, you um, as a sociologist, can you give some insight? Tell us some of the things that Asian American community have gone through in this American soil? Sure, actually, I could relate each my, my family's story. Yes. My family's been Please, in the US for yeah. six generations, been here for six generations. Mm -hmm. And um, it totally connects because um, my great, great, Grandparents originally settled in Monterey, California, where there's an aquarium. We are right by the aquarium. And they were living there for um, decades. Anti-Chinese hate um, really rose in the 1870s when um, the three epidemics of malaria, smallpox, and cholera came, and people blamed Chinese for it. There's a popular magazine and cartoon with those three specters of death of those three diseases emanating out of Chinatown. And um, white workers really <clears throat> resented Chinese taking their jobs. So there was the Working Man's Party who rallied around the um, slogan, Chinese must go. And um, they pushed and they eventually, um, the um, racism and the scapegoating of Chinese because of the diseases, because of the um, threat of taking white jobs because they were seen as assimilable pagans. Eventually that led to the Chinese Exclusion Act, the first immigration act to exclude a particular group. Yep, and that's um, one that we failed to remember. So thank you for reminding us of the Chinese Exclusion Act. Continue. But, but it got, it wasn't only policies, but it was also racial violence. Over 300 Chinese settlements were actually displaced, not individuals, not lynching, but entire communities. So. As an example, my family was in Monterey. They had a thriving fishing village of over 200 people, men and women, one of the few um, family-based communities. And it was, they were on Stanford University land. Stanford evicted them, but they wouldn't move. So there, a fire burned them all out. And then Stanford built a fence around the property and they couldn't return to their home. This is again, my family's home for you know 50 years where they spent um, building a business and a family that is because so of the violence yeah they they couldn't return and eventually they had to go back to well they didn't go back they went to san francisco chinatown for safety the only place they could avoid racism in that area they had children's rallies where the kids were holding up signs saying chinese must go they um they actually displaced people in salinas too so several towns san jose they removed chinese wholesale that continued in 1900. So again, my family is now in, um, I had family in San Francisco and the bubonic plague came, the health officials quarantined all of Chinatown. They put barbed wire around it. They let white people out, but they allowed, they segregated and kept Chinese in to get infected and wouldn't let them out because they're afraid again, Chinese were the disease carriers. In Honolulu and Santa Ana, they actually burned down the entire Chinatown, leaving thousands homeless. What year is this? This is 1900. They actually spread the rats that had the bubonic plague. But again, um, so later- Well, and, you know, uh, it, uh, before you go on, I know um, historically they kept saying Asians and they associated us as rats and they called us rats yeah, yeah, too. Yes. Yes. Rat eaters, yeah. Uh -huh. yes. yeah. So we have go these ahead. 
our racial bodies are weaker and more sick. And then we, um, because of our dietary habits, even back then, they said we ate rats and brought the disease. So this is significant because you're gonna see a history repeat itself. Mm-hmm. In Angel Island, um, they expected, they suspected every Chinese to be an illegal immigrant. So they detained them on Angel Island. And if they weren't fit, if they didn't meet health standards, then they were detained longer and then sometimes deported. And they use really arbitrary measures, like if you had a fluke worm or something. So because of health reasons, Chinese were excluded, Chinese were quarantined, Chinese were detained, Chinese were deported. And that's been a pattern for other Asian groups throughout our history. Uh, my family then, so it keeps on going. Um, because of environmental racism, we have high rates of tuberculosis. We lived in crowded conditions. Um, because of segregation, we couldn't leave those crowded conditions. Um, because we couldn't work in other industries, we were um, mostly low income. And so we had higher rates of tuberculosis. The environment and the crowdedness and the squalid conditions led to this health issue. Chinese and Hispanics um, had much higher rates of tuberculosis. So both my mom's family and my dad's families were sent to hospitals when they were kids and quarantined and separated from their families um, for long periods. So, you know, we talked about family separation by government. Both sides of my family were separated from their families for long periods because of, again, health. This is horrible. So, so, and then, you know, during that period, um, Japanese, so Chinese were always seen as the yellow peril, an outside threat endangering the U.S. That yellow peril here continued, in, you know, against Japanese during World War II and during car. It continues through time. Whenever there's a war, whenever there's an epidemic, whenever there's economic downturn, Asians are seen as outsiders, um, dangerous threats, and to be excluded. In 9-11, again, you see a spate of Islamophobia and Muslims, South Asians, and Arabs get attacked, and they are met with racist policies. So we were worried about all these things coming up to COVID, about the interpersonal violence and racist policies, and those exact same things happened in 2020. Yeah, and now with social media, people are more aware of what's happening and organizations like yourself that are recording all this. Now, you know, we can publicly see what is happening. But before all that, you know, so many people in the larger American society aren't aware of all this hate towards Asian Americans. So thank you so much for sharing your own story. And yours is just one story out of so many other stories where people, you know, we were targeted, uh, killed, you know, the lar- one of the largest mass lynchings happened in LA against the Chinese. You know, we failed to remember this and the Japanese internment and how, you know, Asian Americans weren't considered citizens because of Chinese Exclusion Act. And we couldn't vote and we started to vote only in 1943 and that was only certain groups of Asian Americans not every one of us can vote until 1943 so we do have this long history of racism and hate towards us so thank you for sharing your story what are some of the things that your organization is doing now because I you know there's so much and I hope people will visit uh, www. Um, heyaapi.org to look at what are the things, but tell us, because I know there's so much reports and and so many things on your website. Can you just share us some of the things that you're doing now? Uh, Sure. So I think we do four main things. First, we collect the data 
And we get firsthand accounts from Asian Americans um, of all ages. So you don't think elderly complaining, Asian immigrants complaining about racism, but they are. Um, so but we you know, Russell, what's, what's so alarming because your organization collected up to now about 3,800? Yeah, um, yeah but, what's alarming? You know, what, to me, what's alarming is, you know, we Asian Americans live in this honor shame kind of framework. And so many of us are kind of shameful of things happening. So I'm, I'm suspecting that not everyone's reporting. I'm surprised that they, there are that many reports. But right. you know, we, we live in this shameful kind of society. I myself experience so much racism, but I don't want to tell anyone, you know, because we, we feel so horrible about our own identity and our own selves. But I am surprised that you have already collected that many data and that people are reporting. Sorry to interrupt you, just continue on. Yeah. Yeah, well, to speak to that, there are lots of reasons for Asians not to report. You know, the, if they report to the police, they're not gonna get any response. And so it's like, why bother, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, there's a cultural reason. It's like, if we just keep quiet, that's yeah. a centuries old adaptation process that yeah. helped them survive. Oh so yeah, and especially women, especially women, yeah, especially Asian American women. women. So yeah. Uh -huh. Why instead just focus on what's important for survival rather than complaining. Yeah. And then there's language barriers to complaining to the American government. But to us, um, we have it in multiple languages. We're a trusted community partner. And when we surveyed them later, they said they wanted to develop a community voice. <clears throat> they don't want individual justice, like I want to get that person punished. They just wanted to say, this is what's happening, and we want it to stop, and we want policies to stop it. So they knew that they could go to us and be a voice for the collective, not their individual voice. And I think that's one of the, our strengths is that we've developed a collective voice. And we say, here are the clear patterns. We know that women are harassed 2.3 times more than men. We know it's happening at stores like this one. We know that um, people are coughing and spitting on us and treating us subhumanly. We know that people are using racist language and telling us to go back to China, you effing chink, three out of the 10 cases, even if you're not Chinese. So we have a collective voice and that's, that's our um, strength. We knew that we could um, individually, people would think, oh, that's just an isolated incident if you got coughed on. But when you see it happen, you know, in every state and you see it happening throughout the year and you see it happening to so many people, then people can't refute, oh, that's just one ignorant person. It's not one ignorant prejudiced person. It's part of society's problem and part, and then it gets institutionalized. Oh, I'll yeah. talk about that. Uh -huh. So um, we collect the data and then we provide resources for them and they, they need it because, um, they're showing signs of racial trauma. These incidents aren't microaggressions that you could dismiss. They remain hypervigilant af afterwards. Like a year afterwards, they're still hypervigilant. They're yeah. avoiding places mm -hmm. and they're fearful and anxious. And so Asian Americans as a whole have the most mental health distress during the pandemic. And because of racism, if you experience racism, you have even higher rates of anxiety and depression. So, we're trying to provide um, resources for them. We're trying to educate the public, right? So we're going to governments a lot, telling them this is what's happening. We're telling corporations, this is affecting your workers. We're going to schools. And then we're doing policy advocacy. So we've met at the White House. Um, we spoke at the House Judiciary Committee this week. 
I spoke to the attorney general directly this week, and we're really trying to um, come up with concrete evidence-based practices to address issues. So we're not just complaining and, um, but we're actually trying to come up with concrete plans to make yeah. a difference for the long-term. So thank you for your advocacy. I think that's so important because there's not enough of us kind of speaking out loud. What is their response? Are they going to change policies? Are they going to do anything about all this data that is being collected? What are think, their stances? Well, I feel like um, this is the first time in like 40 years, almost 30 years, that Congress actually had a hearing about Asian Americans. President Biden has spoken about it four times now publicly. So this is a national issue. This has reached the highest levels of power. It's hit, hit corporate boardrooms. It's hit media newsrooms. So I think it's getting attention because it is a national issue. This is it an is. Asian. Yeah. It's not an Asian American issue. It's a national issue of violence, of racism, and crime. It's not an Asian American issue. It's other people's racism. They're the problem, not yeah. us. Mm -hmm. And so they got to deal with it. Um, yeah. And, thank you and for so naming that. Issue. Yeah. Thank you for naming that because in most cases, the blame is us. You know, we took away their jobs. Uh, we are the cause of the pandemic. We are this, we are that. Blame everybody. We are sca scapegoated, but it is really their problem. So thank you for naming that. And so now, you know, to get to March 16, you know, that was such a national painful event. Uh, to me, it was unbelievable. Um, you know, how can we be living in this kind of society where Asian Americans are targeted and killed? You know, and I know you have, um, been able to record other deaths during the pandemic where um, elderly people were pushed and they died. Um, but how can we be living in the society of March 16 where eight people are killed in these bars? It was targeted hate crime, though he is now giving stupid excuses about sex addiction and whatever his upbringing, Christianity. You know, I, to me, when I see these hate crimes being committed by white men and their Christian upbringing, you know, people know it is Christian nationalism. For me, I've been calling it Americanity for a long time. It's not Christianity. It is this distorted form of white Americanism, which they believe is Christianity that leads them to love guns and hate the other and do this all in God's name. It is so sickening to me, you know, for all of, you know, our collective community, we've been in so much pain all week and I can't wrap my heads around it. I have three kids, they can't wrap their heads around it. It's a painful moment of our history. And so, I don't know, Russell, can you help us work this through? How are we to understand this? How are we to move on? How do we prevent further uh, atrocities like this happening? Because I'm afraid it's going to happen again by some white young man who claims himself to be a Christian and going around and committing hate crime. And they better name it as a hate crime because there's nothing else when sexism and this Asian, um, 
fetishizing of Asian women, you know, all tied in with racism and colonialism. It is really sickening in my inner being. It, I, I'm lost for words. I don't know what we need to do. You know, and, and, and social media, people are saying, why isn't there like a rally? Why isn't there some national outcry? Like what happened with George Floyd? I, I, I don't know. I am so stunned that this happened. I don't know. Can you help us work through this national tragedy? Yeah, it is a tragedy, Grace. And like you, I'm like, even just when you began speaking about it, you know, it's heart-wrenching, it and I know I, I physically shake. Um, Me too. Me too. When I just stop, when I just stop to think about it, and it is, um, I'm so outraged and so distressed. And for me, you know, um, I'm not surprised. I mean. First of all, can you understand it? No, for me, it's senseless, right? That it and, is senseless, and it's and there it's there was so, no reason for this tragedy. And, and um, but I could understand factors that led to it, and I could understand well seeing how much hate has been directed towards Asians all year, seeing how much people are fearful, angry, and want to scapegoat Asians. Yeah, I knew it could happen. We planned for it to happen because we knew that's what happened after 9-11 towards South Asians, right? They're, 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 they were just racially profiled. They just happened to look like the stereotype of a terrorist. And so a Sikh Gurdwara was shot up. And so we knew it was gonna, well, we didn't know it was gonna happen, but we knew the possibility was really live, but it's still your first, worst fears realized and even though you could see it coming and you know it could happen you're not prepared for the horror of it so we really do grieve with the families of the victims and um yeah yeah, yeah. this is a national tragedy you know one of the victims is uh miss grant that's her english uh surname you know, <coughs> she's the same age as me she has two mm. boys. Now they are alone. They, they don't have any other family here. The family is back in Korea. You know, it really hits you when you realize who these victims are and the young people that they leave behind. It, it is a horrific state and so unnecessary. And, you know, the cops, the white cops saying it may not be a hate crime because he insists it's not a hate crime. You know, the... There were so many witnesses and he was screaming out kill all asians this this was racially motivated hate crime and i'm afraid of our now you know we you know we asian american community is very diverse religiously but you know these places of worship i'm fearful that they could be targeted next it, it is well, they have been they have yeah. been uh-huh so i i, I don't know just yeah i mean it, it's in the con i could talk about the context of the racism yeah can you please and christian yeah. nationalism that led to yeah. it. Uh -huh. so okay. christian nationalism is this idea that america should be a white christian nation that that's our heritage and that's how it should be 
And so if you're not white nor black, if you're not necessarily Christian, then you don't belong. And so Asians who aren't white or black and Asians who are a lot of us aren't Christian are clearly to be excluded and to get rid of. Again, people will say that all the time to us in our hate incidents. They're always telling us, go back home where you came from. They wanted us out. That's why, um, so this whole idea of Asians being outsiders to be excluded, this is part of Christian nationalism. America is only for white people, maybe blacks. And if you don't, then you're an outsider. You could be treated as objects, right? You could be spat and cough on. And Asian women, there's an intersectional double subjugation. You're a sexualized object, right? You get fetishized, and that's how you get represented in popular media. That's why this gunman targeted these particular places and drove 30 miles out of his way um, to go to these places rather than just going to the nearest place he could have gone, right? He was targeting Asian female businesses. And because of their class background, these people had to be working there. And um, it, there so were the, reports that actually he visited those places beforehand too. Yeah, but to why sure. would he choose yeah. those places, right? Yeah. That's, uh -huh. that's the issue. I think yeah. the way we're racialized, the way we're sexualized, the way we're portrayed, Asian women are supposed to be these actually submissive objects, which is actually what Christian nationalism once they want to go back to that time when women were objects they want it when men are um, a patriarchal society where men are in control and so asian women actually fit that model that christian nationalist patriarchal model that they want that let's keep women in their place and so it all fits why he chose asian women rather than anybody else um, to direct his sexual addiction towards why he directed his anger towards um, Asians, why he, um, so race and gender always have something to do with it, you, you know, and to say, oh, he didn't say it was racially motivated. We know, again, um, that race factors into all these cases, that gender factors in all these cases, and religion does too. Oh, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, um, Distorted I think forms it's, it's, it's senseless, but we can understand the factors that led up to him targeting Asians for hate and for objectification and for fetishization. It's all wrong. And what we need to do is, again, challenge all those narratives, challenge that notion of who belongs to America is only white Christian, challenge that notion that that's how America should be, challenge the patriarchy that sexualizes people, that treats people as objects. Like you said, these people with families, you know, they're real people. They're not objects um, for your addiction to be used, right? And so, and that's what, like I said, then we get doubly traumatized, like you said, by the sheriff's response. They're saying, oh, he just has a mental health. He had a bad day. And that's why Asians don't report to the government or to the legal authorities, because they're just sort of supportive of the white male you know, it's, it happens again. They always defend the young white male. And so they just have mental health issues, but then they stereotype whole categories of people for mass incarceration, for mass shooting and for mass banning. Yeah. So how do we, so you use the word challenge, all these uh, Christian nationalism, how, uh, you know, white people view Asian Americans. How do we keep challenging? Because I am, even for myself, I'm kind of at lost 
you know, it, even within my own community, every time, you know, an Asian American or whenever I said, oh, you know, someone was racist toward me, they always, white people would say, oh, you're not black. You, that wasn't racism, you know, because here in the US, we talk in binary terms, black and white terms, yeah. that we get lost in the middle and any hatred, any racism, discrimination, marginalization, racialization that is targeted toward us, they use terms like, oh, you're the model minority, using, you're, you're the model minority, you know, you're honorific whites. My goodness, I've heard that so many times. Oh, that wasn't racism because you're an honorific white. How do we challenge this? Because it's been an ongoing struggle for me. It happens in churches, it happens in our seminaries, our universities, our colleges. My, my kids are in school. You know, it happens everywhere. How do we challenge this? Yeah. How do we change the narrative that this is racism? Um, and yeah, for me, this, that's a great question. I think that this is the roots of the racism that Asian Americans face. First of all, like you said, Race relations in the U.S. is defined on white-black terms. And because yeah. we're neither white nor black, we're omitted, we're invisibilized, yeah. we're excluded. We're, we're not polled after elections because there's too many of us, diversity, and you can't group us together. Um, and we're not asked, though, as we are not even con conceived of as a minority. But as clearly seen in the racism and the hate directed to us now, we're not white or black, but we're either conceived us on a binary of whether we're insiders as the model minority, sometimes we're white adjacent, or we're outsiders, right? we're on the insider-outsider binary. And now, again, we're pushed to being outsiders to be excluded. And again, Trump passed all this legislation to stop migration visas, to cut refugee resettlement, to cut H-1B visas, to cut Chinese scientists and researchers. We're excluded time and time again. We're getting deported at high rates. So that foreigner label, the outsider to be excluded enables personal violence, enables institutional policies, and enables the shooting of Asian women, right? And so that's the racism we're experiencing. We're treated as outsiders who don't belong, and we need to disrupt that binary. Together with Black Lives Matter, as they disrupt the white-black binary, we disrupt the insider-outsider binary, both forms of oppression, both forms of racism need to be dismantled in order to mantle white supremacy as a whole. So I think this is the Asian American contribution to America, to reconceive justice, to reconceive citizenship beyond the insider-outsider binary. This is actually really Christian. This is true Christian nationalism, that we could be a, a nation like Christ that welcomes all. If we could be a nation like Christ, that has no insider outsider, but um, sees everybody as their family, right? That, that actually follows biblical principles of justice because you're concerned about the foreigner rather than trying to expel the foreigner and or build a wall against the foreigner or separate the families of the foreigner or to keep the foreigners out and shooting them up. So I think real Christian, a real Christian nation would, um, acknowledge we were foreigners before too and so we should have hospitality and justice for the foreigner so um i think for us the asian american okay so this is what i'll say to asian americans we're fighting so hard for belonging to america and i say don't because america is a corrupt broken society 
don't try to belong to America because it mass incarcerates, it mass detains, it mass bans, it mass shoots. Instead, belong, use your foreigner status, reappropriate it. Because if you understand being a foreigner, then you understand your parents or your grandparents who immigrated and how much they suffered as outsiders. Stay a foreigner because if you do, then you could have that critical feminist outsider gaze to see what's broken and then make the change. If we go too much as an insider, then we just become complicit. Because if we stay foreign to America's evils, then we could actually um, lead it to repentance, lead it to change, and lead it to justice. So for me, yeah, being a foreigner can be considered a lowly status. It can subject us to hatred and pain, but I don't want to belong to America as it is, and I'd rather stay foreign to some of the evils of American capitalism, American Christian nationalism, American racism. Wow. Thank you for saying those words, because as Asian Americans, you know, our whole immigrant history, we're trying to belong. And, you yeah. know, I have a forthcoming book called Invisible, and you just use the word we are invisible, especially in this white black binary of racism. And so I talk about how we are invisible, but I am intrigued and I am so um, empowered by your words of just being the foreigner. You know, for me, I've always struggled with that because of this collectiveness of our Asian Americans that we want to belong. You know, this is our country. This is who we are. You know, don't kick us out. And, you know, I've used biblical imagery like um, in Ezra for when they, uh, you know, after uh, they were exiled and they came back to their land, um, they got together and they said, what should we do with the foreign woman? Because, you know, the Israelites had, mar had married. Yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. and, 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 and so they decided, okay, we're going to get rid of them. So they sent the foreign women out with their children. And I'm thinking, I don't want to be like that. And so I've always kind of in my framework thought, I don't want to be always considered the perpetual foreigner because that is the term that was placed on us. So these terms, we never wanted them, but like the terms like model minority and honorific white and perpetual foreigner, they were thrown upon us. So I was always trying to fight it, but I like your approach of, yeah, we don't want to belong to this craziness <laughs> of this racist society, of this Christian nationalist society, or what I call Americanity, which is distorted Christianity. Yeah, maybe, you know, and, and at times like this, you know, your voice is so important, Russell, and it's very prophetic. And I think God uses, uh, you know, those who have been marginalized to show the evils of the center. And maybe, yeah, we should stay in our foreigner space and critique and tell white nationalists, Christians, whatever we want to use for the term, because I know so many people are resistant to use those terms, that the problem is theirs and they really need to fix this problem before more are traumatized, more are attacked and more are killed. That's my big worry, that more will be killed. But the trauma is here and it's gonna last for generations. You know, we Asians, especially Koreans use the term Han, spelled H-A-N, because Korea has experienced so much suffering 
as a nation collectively, and the suffering gets passed on from one generation to the next. It is this unjust suffering. And we as Asian immigrants are experiencing this, and we experienced it through March 16. You know, some people will say, go get over it, you weren't killed. But collectively, we experience this trauma. And as you said earlier, you your body shakes. You know, my body shakes so much thinking about it. It is traumatic for our community because of this collective hunt. And we as Asian Americans, you know, we live in the framework of community. We're not so individual. And you mentioned it earlier too. So thank you for sharing that. It is words of wisdom and I have to rethink my framework of mind and and you know, as a Christian theologian, you know, this impacts how I do theology. So thank you for sharing that, Russell. It, it, it is so meaningful. And I, you know, it's something that I have to sit with for a long time. And I hope our listeners uh, will sit with it for a long time too, because you know, we are placed in this country, and I think we have to do a lot of good in this in this country. And and I don't know, rethink Christianity because Christianity itself is so white, Russell. God is made white. Jesus of Nazareth <laughs> is made white by all these European theologians and through the Roman Empire. And we have to decolonize Christianity. We cannot continue to talk of God as white male and as Jesus as white male. We need to change this framework because when we think about these killers, these white male killers, not just on March 16th, but in the past, those who went into synagogues, those who went into churches and those who went into schools to kill, a lot of them go back and say they were Christians and you know, blah, 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 and Christianity informed this kind of hatred. So we really need to unpack Christianity and not perpetuate this whiteness, which it is not. God of spirit, God who created this universe, this world, created all of us in God's image. You know, so we have to kind of remember that. So thank you, Russell, for kind of unpacking that for us and helping us. And I hope our listeners will keep being challenged by those words. Any other things, Russell, that we can do? And, and I know my white friends are asking, what can we do? How can we help stop this hate crime? What can we do? I don't know, any words? What, what can the white community do? The Black community, uh, my friends, you know, they've been texting and messaging me and, and they are standing in solidarity. My Latino, Latinx friends, uh, Hispanic friends are doing the same and, and the Native Americans. What can the white community do? I think, um, yeah, I, I should wrap up now. And so I guess my message to our white um, neighbors and coworkers and friends and allies and family uh, is, is to see us. So Grace, you talk so much about feeling invisible and I hear that a lot from Asian Americans. And we do want to be seen um, in our pain right now. And I think, um, again, by acknowledging it, by wanting to listen to 
our experiences. Um, so we also want to be heard. And um, by sharing our, our, our grief, um, just the way Jesus has empathy and compassion, I think that would be, again, on the one-to-one -one level, really, really supportive um, to hear our stories and to send those notes. Um, secondly, I think it is to acknowledge our collectiveness, that we're, um, yeah, we're individuals, but we also really do strongly hold to a group perspective and a group identity so that um, even though we don't know what the names of some of the people in Atlanta, they still, we still identify with their hurt and their pain. And so understanding actually our perspectives is really a different way for a lot of white people to understand things. So they say, I don't see you as Asian, I just see you as race. No, I think being Asian is part of who we are and something that we should be proud of. Um, and then you could intervene if you see racism, if you um, hear a joke, that's really, really helpful to um, not be complicit and be silent, but instead to speak up whenever you um, get a, a social media or here in person, um, something wrong. Oh, yeah, this is why I hear a lot in corporations. Know how to say our names. You know, people just miss pronounce our names and think it's okay and or they think it's a joke or they, oh yeah they joke all the time or they make you americanize your name but no just honor people by saying their name again their name is god's name has dignity and holiness and so you should honor our names so there's lots of ways you could respect see and um so i guess um and then finally um you could use your your political voice to vote out hate mongers and you could use your pocketbook to donate to asian american groups even just go out to even supporting an asian business at this yes. one is helpful uh -huh. because yeah. because of racism people have been avoiding our businesses so use your pocketbook use your vote use your voice use your ears and eyes to support us Oh, thank you so much, Russell. Thank you, Grace. I know, yeah, thank I know you, you had a very time. yeah, I know you had a very busy week. You were on MSNBC and other national outlets. Thank you for your work and in, even in your business. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts. And I hope our listeners will take upon your act and also donate also to your organization, stop AAPI hate.org. Um, it's easy to find on the website to so donate there, use your money in Asian businesses, help us out. And and vote out horrible people out of Congress. I think that would be great too. So thank you for your words of wisdom. Thank you so much. And if you want to learn more about uh, Dr. Russell Jung, you can read his five, one of his five books. They're all very important books to read. And thank you again, Russell, for sharing your own family history, your own family story. It's so important to hear our stories and share our stories. So thank you so much for being my guest on, on this special episode of Madang. And I hope you will uh, come back again um, at another time to talk about one of your books. Thank you again, um, Dr. Russell Jung from uh, San Francisco State University. Thank you. <laughs>